From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Dr. Pamela Jolly, CEO of Torch Enterprises, joins me to discuss the innovative and groundbreaking Black Male Equity Initiative that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. For far too long, we have been inundated with statistics that paint a dire picture of the African-American community, in particular, black males. The school-to-prison pipeline has been well-documented. It seems in every key social statistic, African-Americans find themselves collectively in the lower quartile. But my guest, Dr. Pamela Jolly, not only suggests there is another narrative that we should be discussing, she is doing something about it to bring it to fruition. Dr. Jolly, CEO of Torch Enterprises, she is one of the founders of the Black Male Equity Initiative. The Black Male Equity Initiative was created to establish a foundation from which to build, grow, and expand the legacy wealth perspective of black men by measuring and monitoring four specific milestones and results of a black male cohort in Detroit. They just recently completed a 12-month intensive, and an anthology will soon follow. Full disclosure, I served as one of the editors for the anthology. Dr. Pamela Jolly, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be here, Byron. Thank you for inviting me. Mm. Let's begin by having you just break, give us a distillation on what exactly is the Black Male Equity Initiative. Sure. So the Black Male Equity Initiative is a partnership between Torch Enterprises, my company, and the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, which is led by Sean Dove. And it really is uh, the culmination of uh, two people with, two, with one vision, uh, but it's for Black Male Achievement. So in case, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Black Male Achievement, it's been a decade where hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in the achievement of Black males. And most of the, that money has been invested in to workforce development, education, and fatherhood. And while those are extremely important areas of a Black male's life, um, my personal research of over 3,900 African-American men qualitatively and many more quantitatively reveal that what makes a black man a black man is his ability to take care of himself, those he loves, and his community. And so I can't see that happening without some attention being played on wealth, specifically legacy wealth. And so after meeting Sean Dove at an event in Omaha, and he read my book, The Narrow Road, he said, what can we do together? And I had written a curricula for black men and we decided to uh, work together in Detroit with our first inaugural cohort to really walk the men through 12 months of four explorations of equity. And the way that I define equity is wealth stored up. And so we went looking for the wealth that is stored up from a black male's perspective in their legacy, 
in their strategy to overcome the invisible, invisible prisons in the business of themselves, in the business of our community. And we're going to unpack those in a moment, but, but you said something in your first answer I want to come back to. Um, sure. You specifically said legacy wealth. What is that? Yeah, so legacy wealth is so much different than wealth. Um, my dissertation was the convergence of faith and finance in the African-American community. For too many people, wealth is limited to money. Um, but wealth is so much more than money. In fact, in the narrow road, there are five different capitals that you have that create wealth. In fact, wealth is just 20% resources. But when you put legacy in front of wealth, you extend it across generations. So the reason why I don't call it generational wealth is because oftentimes in my research of over 7,000 African-Americans, 3,900 of them African-American uh, men, um, was that many people said, well, I'm not going to inherit nothing. So generational wealth is not for me. Legacy wealth is for everyone because legacy is a narrative that did not begin with you and will not end with you unless you discontinue the conversation. So legacy wealth is an invitation to look at not just your lifetime, but the lifetimes it took for us to get here and the lifetimes that it will take further down the road for us to have wealth as a standard. So it's not just, you know, Byron making X amount of dollars that puts Byron in the 1% uh, tax bracket. You're talking about something much larger that involves um, not only financially, but socially and generationally. Is that correct? Most definitely. And to be more specific, um, it's your cultural equity, your intellectual equity, your human equity, which is money. I mean, money is only your time times an hourly or an annual wage. It's your social equity, your relationships and what you can build with them and your spiritual equity, your belief system. So all five of those capitals, if you will, are part of your portfolio to create legacy wealth. But then it's just not about you. It's about you, Byron, uh, you, Byron, as a son, a grandson, and a great-grandson. Um, and then also it's about Byron as a part of various different communities that he identifies with. So it's about the business of you and the aggregate of the business of us, but it's this legacy tradition of managing resources and capitals, as I've described, um, across generations. So it becomes a very holistic view at value, you know, and, and worth um, and benefit and transfer and the importance of the legacy continuing. Now, didn't we historically see that play out post-slavery, post-Civil uh, War, uh, where, where, where there was this accumulation uh, uh, of, of property and the 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 the, the, the sort of uh, I guess uh, pooling resources to, to build schools it, 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 do we still have that legacy or is that legacy yeah gone? If, I, if I understand well I think just let's let's talk about what you just said you know that legacy in particular I think what you're referring to is a statistic that I love that 49 years post emancipation second generation emancipated slaves pulled capital together and created over 249 colleges and universities because education was the investment towards our freedom. And when we think about what we, how we pull our capital now, um, for me, it's, if I look at it just from our statistics to start, um, we're largely concentrated in one variable of GDP. For those of you who understand GDP in a simplified form, it's consumption plus savings plus investments plus imports minus exports. 
And so consumption is the largest variable of GDP, which is the operating budget of a nation or a city or a country um, in America. Um, and consumption is translated into buying power when you talk about the African-American community. And so it is noted that we spend $1.2 trillion a year, yet research has shown that we only earn about $947 billion. So there's a multi-billion dollar deficit in the way in which we live. So our pooling of capital is really pooling of top line revenue for other businesses at this point. Our savings rate and our investment rate uh, really pale in comparison to our consumption, our rate of consumption. And so when we talk about legacy wealth and the important role of remembering our legacy and inheriting that legacy, it's important that we understand our history um, as being African-Americans who are really the only segment of the population of America who uh, were first capital before we made capital, were first traded before we ever traded. And so as a result, we are creators of wealth for others. And that part of our legacy has never changed. The creation of wealth for ourselves to become wealth creators, that's where there is still room for opportunity. And that's really where the Black Male Equity Initiative focused. How do we become wealth creators for ourselves in light of all the things that we have done as a people and in light of all the things that we could do? How can we also include um, that level of intellectual capital that we have about knowing how to get things done and how to bring value? How do we apply that to our own lives? and communities. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Pamela Jolly, CEO of Torch Enterprises, and we are discussing the Black Male Equity Initiative, which she is a central part in, in the brain trust. So Dr. Jolly, uh, tell us about this latest initiative. It's, it's, it's in Detroit. Talk, talk about this latest work that you've done. Yeah, so I'm really proud of the work that we've done. Um, you know, we started January 27th, 2018, and we spent 12 months, four intensives, biweekly calls um, with a cohort of black men in Detroit, where we explored cultural equity, intellectual equity, human equity, and social equity. But we also pulled our capital together and acquired an asset, developed that asset, and sold it so that we didn't just talk about what equity could be we really formed a business of us, if you will, um, and, and learned by experience what it takes to work together, have a shared vision, pool capital together, trust each other, trust ourselves, um, and then really work with people in our community to identify the property. We worked with the president of NARAB, uh, the local chapter in Detroit, Hayward Little, to identify the property. We worked with a black developer who was known to have developed um, multi-million dollar projects. Um, and so we started with the baby step and we taught the financial model and how it is underwritten and how it is funded so that the men could experience what it looks like to not just talk about equity, but to earn equity and then be in an equity position to determine where do we go from here. Um, and so various different black men from across the country came in each and every single quarter, bringing their intellectual capital to the equity table. We were blessed by being supported by the Skillman Foundation in Detroit that allowed us to work in such a beautiful atmosphere. They had this amazing conference room with this huge, what I call, equity table. 
And so imagine African-American men sitting around this table, having a business conversation about their legacy, about the future, about themselves and about their community. That's what the Black Male Equity Initiative uh, started out as in our pilot for 2018 into 2019. And why, why Detroit? It's interesting, um, in, in, in total honesty and transparency, um, the why Detroit has become even more um, evident post our uh, beginning this journey than in the, init in the initial phases. Um, Detroit is an area of huge historical significance. Um, it is the first African-American community that actually filed bankruptcy. But Detroit was the birthplace of a lot of what CBMA, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, has made in terms of investments in black men. So I brought the intellectual capital and the structure and the programming and um, the idea of the initiative. But what Sean Dove and the Campaign for Black Male Achievement did was bring the men um, based on the relationships that he has cultivated over the last decade of his work in Black Male Achievement um, with, with brilliant black men in Detroit. Um, also, when you look at where Detroit is from a real estate perspective, it is noted as America's comeback uh, also, in its legacy, it's got four black mayors, um, all men, you know, who have an equity perspective. But America's comeback in Detroit, if you look statistically, there's a couple variables that are missing in that equity equation um, that reflect African Americans in that city. And so to work with men to really explore what equity means from a black male perspective, how do we build equity? grow equity and invest equity um, is critical so that we can increase our levels of participation in what America is calling um, our comeback. Now, you, you touched on it earlier, and I, and I know the work um, that, that, that you've done. Uh, you talked about the four explorations. Let, let, let's delve into those, if you would. Uh, sure. Start, start and I'll, I'll let you take over, but start, first of all, uh, with that tower view and who represents that, just take us through each one. Let's start there. Sure. So each, um, so as I said before, there's four explorations of equity. Now the explorations are led by two things. First, there's a biblical passage that is based on Second Chronicles fourteen seven, which is King Asa, which is Solomon's great grandson. And the text says, "Let us rebuild the city, the towers, the walls, the bars, and the gates. Let us rebuild." But we have sought the Lord and he will give us rest at every side. Now, it takes three generations to build legacy wealth and only one generation to lose it. If you can keep four generations connected, you can make wealth a standard. And so there are four generations living right now in the African-American community. And so the goal of my work is to keep those four generations together. Now, similarly, Asa was the great grandson of Solomon, which is one of the wealthiest men in the Bible. But Solomon's father in one dinner raised enough capital for his son to build a temple for God, the temple that he wanted. 
And so we looked at this biblical passage to guide us in our explorations of towers, walls, bars, and gates. So that was the first thing. The second thing that guided us were legacy narratives of African-American men that demonstrated what the text showed. So the first exploration in quarter one was called the Tower View. That's a lookout from a very high place. And that's looking at both forward and backward. And Thurgood Marshall led us in that exploration. He is noted by a book written by Juan Williams about his biography um, as being the, the, the writer of the blueprint for equality for America. And so if we look at his journey um, from going from an, a segregated school to integrating schools to creating um, a program for private historically black colleges, public historically black colleges, you have this long view, this legacy that continued even after his death. And so looking at our first African-American Supreme Court justice and learning from the different facets of his life, we learn what cultural equity can be. When you go to your very high place and you don't just look out from your lifetime, you look out from being a son, a grandson and a great grandson, but you also look out as being a father, a grandfather and a great grandfather. So you're able to be in the middle of both the past and the future and have a cultural perspective that is ripe with equity of the present. And so that is what the first quarter was all about to allow the men to look at their power view. And I have to say, you know, many of them said, you know, I've never even thought about my life that way. I've never even thought about thinking about my connection to my children and my grandchildren, but then going back and thinking about my daddy and my granddaddy and my great granddaddy. I mean, that really, I, I am wealth and I can see it because in what I can recall or what I can ask about for those who are no longer with us. I can also note that if I look from a very high place, there's some things I need to avoid that are in my family that aren't gonna continue with my legacy. Or there's some things that I definitely have to make sure do not die with me because he's not alive right now, but I am and I remember. So there were so many things that happened in quarter one and, and the men all agreed that if you really wanna talk about wealth, financial and otherwise, you have to start with legacy. Our second quarter before you go, before you go there, I, yes. just, I just want to touch on something that I that I know that you did. Talk about because you just touched on it. Talk about the importance of doing DNA testing in that process. Yes. So a client of mine and a dear friend of mine is Dr. Gina Page, which is president of AfricanAncestry.com, and so the men um, all took a sampling of their DNA through AfricanAncestry.com. And she came and did a big reveal in quarter two. And when I tell you, when the men were able to do what I call a reverse middle passage, to see how, yes, they might be a Brown or a Jones or a Williams, but they also are connected to Nigeria, to Sierra Leone, to Lagos, to a variety of different places where they were all brothers in a brotherhood. And there were tribes in that room that had been tribes before we even came here as assets on the balance sheet. It really deepened the perspective of the wealth that is stored up inside of us, the equity um, that we have to deploy. And so it really shaped our journey um, outside of what we're known to look at in terms of 
how much money you make, what kind of car do you have, where do you live, what do you do. It really looked at who are you really, and are you all that you say you are, and are you all that you can be. I raise that with you because in the work that you're doing, you know, you're using words that many of us are familiar with, but we use them in a very cursory way. And what I see your work is really, among many other things, uh, engaged in shifting paradigms on, on things that we, uh, words we've sort of taken for granted or used loosely. Amen. Um, it's interesting. There was a pastor of mine that I really, really appreciated, and he said that the Bible speaks literally, literally figuratively, and symbolically. And after talking with 7,000 African Americans and having five terabytes of data, I found that we use the same words, but we don't mean the same things. And so we can feel really good about each other in a room, in a moment, in an instant when the words are the same. But when we leave, the reality that the meanings aren't the same make it just a moment. And so the ability to be able to go beyond the moment to whether it is the movement or the message or the meaning, the true meaning of why we felt the way we felt when we were together was what we were blessed to be able to have for 12 months with the Black Male Equity Initiative. Okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you back on track because I took you off. You were about to talk about number two, the bars, exploration two. Yes, yes. So we went from the towers to the bars. So the bars represent intellectual equity. Um, it also represents strategy to overcome the roadblocks on your road to wealth. My book is called The Narrow Road to Wealth, and so there's a specific framework. But this is facing the invisible prisons that black men face. You know, we are not unfamiliar. We are very familiar with the high incarceration rates and the low employment rates and a variety of different things that impact a black man at the surface. But one of the things that I found in my research that was going unnoticed then, and recognized my research um, took a span of nine years, but this was in the beginning where I saw these, raising, these rising rates of suicide of African-American men. And this is an invisible prison. So we looked at how do you survive success? So we looked at when I looked at the men who were committing suicide in my research study, it was those men that were part of that 48% that graduate from high school. It was those men that were part of that 6 to 7% that graduate from college. It was those men that were part of that 6 to 7% who were then a part of the 3 to 5% that actually get an advanced degree. And it was a part of the men who got the advanced degree, got married and had children. These were the men who by all means were success when we think about the statistics that we focus on, high incarceration rates and low employment rates, these were the men that weren't in that visible prison, but these were the men who were suffering from invisible prisons. And those invisible prisons were killing them. And so we looked at the legacy of President Barack Obama, because that black man, our first black president, demonstrated the intellectual capital that was necessary. Intellectual capital, meaning the confidence and the courageousness to be able to do what other people said you can't do. And so we worked with um, a, a noted psychiatrist, a dear friend of mine from Hampton, who's a, a Harvard psychiatrist, as well as uh, Sean Morin, to be able to look at what does a growth mindset really mean for a black man? How does he become flexible and adaptable? What is his strategy? 
to create, build, grow, and expand wealth how he defines it. And so in looking at that, we explored the painful statistics that came out during that time, during that time of, the, um, of, the, of the year. Because that's when the Pew Charitable Trust study came out. That's when the New York Times study came out. When it talked about that we were hundreds of years away from catching up to majority America in terms of wealth creation. It talked about that we have a higher probability of going down the income ladder than up the income ladder. In fact, six out of 10 upper middle class African-American children will live either lower middle class or poverty level realities. And so we talked about what does that really look like and how do you survive success and how do we ensure that the legacy continues? And it was there that the men really were, we did an assessment in the beginning with Sean Mooring that was so brilliant. And it was taken from the, the woman who, um, Dr. Carol Dweck, who wrote the book Mindset. And she is the one that really introduced the difference between a fixed and a growth mindset. And there was an assessment that you could take. And we were pleased to see that our cohort of men had growth mindsets so that we had something to start with and we moved forward. Because a dear mentor of mine and, and professor uh, while I was in seminary, Dr. Peter Paris, he was the one that first kind of enlightened me with an insecure mind can't learn. And so we wanted to make sure how do we secure our mind in a growth mindset so we can learn what we need to learn to do what we need to do when the reality of wealth for the African-American community is that it's largely uncharted territory. Wealth is nothing new in America, but to us, it's largely uncharted territory. It requires a growth mindset to admit what you don't know and learn what you need to know so that you can grow further down the road to wealth. And so that's what we explored in um, Intensive 2, Quarter 2. Exploration, exploration 3, The Walls. Yes, so Exploration 3, The Walls, was about the walls of financial resiliency. So we looked at this brick by brick. Now, I'm a former banker um, and, a, and a financial strategist. And so I look at everything through a lens of business. And the primary purpose of business is to build wealth. And when a business is in the black, it is profitable. So if you run a black business, that means you run a profitable business. And anyone and everyone with a financial statement is in business. Yet few individuals actually look at themselves as that. So by right, if you are to be about your father's business or even your business, it needs to be a black one. It needs to be profitable because the primary purpose of the existence of you being able to earn income and to manage liabilities and to generate a profit is for you to be able to build wealth that can sustain your lifestyle, but also leave some to pass on for generations. And so quarter three, we explored this through the lens of Charles Hamilton Houston. Now, Charles Hamilton Houston is the first African-American who graduated from Harvard's law school. And he is known for breaking the back of the Jim Crow law. Now, if you recognize, after the Reconstruction period, Jim Crow was the separate but not equal. You know, it separated us from being able to have access to the markets. It's called the economic detour. So the primary purpose of business is to build wealth, and the primary benefit of being an American was open access to the markets, free trade. Jim Crow blocked that for us. And through segregation laws, there were two types of segregation. There was what I call the Alabama segregation and then the, the Memphis segregation. In Alabama, you couldn't do business with the majority of America and you couldn't do business with each other. 
You, all you could do was work if you could get it. In Memphis, you couldn't do business with majority America, but you could do business with each other. So if you look at our history in terms of the business of you, most of our millionaires came out of Memphis and they traveled all across this country because they showed that what happens when you have a closed loop economic circle, when you know your business and you know how your business connects with the business of others, we can generate an economy and that economy can support and sustain the lives of others. So through the lens of Charles Hamilton Houston, we looked at what it takes to break the back of separation. How do we not no longer separate our businesses from the rest of the mandate of America? America is based on the wealth of nations. How do we do that? And so we went straight down to the basics. You are an asset with liabilities. Your assets earn income in which you have fixed costs and variable costs. And at the end of that fixed costs and variable costs, you have a bottom line. And that bottom line is either positive or negative. And the measurement of that is in your cash flow, of which you have three types of cash flow, operating, financing, and investing. And so your operating cash flow, if you understand it, is your budget, and your budget needs to be positive. Your financing cash flow is the relationship that you have with not just your money, but other people's money, which is measured by your credit score. And your investment cash flow is your relationship with the future. Are you investing in things that will go beyond your lifetime or at least beyond your retirement? And so the men were able to work with Charles Tank Harris, um, who is an amazing financial planner, but he has such a heart and a spirit for this work. And he was able to translate even the most complex financial vehicles dependent upon each man in the cohort situation so that they could provide for themselves, provide for their children and provide for um, what they would like to do with their community. Because every single one of these men from the moment we started was like, what about the community? What about the community? And I said, I care about the community, but until you put your mask on first, I don't want to hear about the community because the status of where we are from our organizations being underfunded is nothing new. What can be different is when the business of you can afford to connect to the business of us with equity. And so that's what we looked at in quarter three. All right. One more. Uh, exploration for the gates of access. Yes. So we finally got to the point where the men started with. Because every single one of the men in our cohort, I mean, they're amazing men. And you will, thanks to uh, the work of Byron and um, another editor, you'll be able to see glimpses of who these men are in our Black Male Equity Anthology coming out later this month. Um, but essentially, the business of us Wait just is a an aggregate. You know, that was the first shout out I ever had on my own show about me. So thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> and for those of you listening who enjoy Byron, I need you to know he's been such a blessing. And I'm so grateful to have found him. I'm so grateful that he's on our team. Of course, you know that he's an amazing writer. I received his book over the holiday and I've been reading it. Um, but he truly got this work. And... Um, much of what you will enjoy reading within our the anthology 
has to do with the brilliance of this black man on this radio show, which I am really grateful that God allowed us to meet and to work together. And I believe and I'm praying this is the first of many great things to come of the work that we have together. And this is exemplary of the business of us. But go ahead, Byron. No, no. no, You go ahead and talk about Exploration 4. But I'm just, um, obviously, I just realized that was the first time someone gave me a shout out on my show. So I just, I appreciate it. But um, uh, you talk about Exploration 4, the gates of access. Okay, so Exploration 4 is the business of us. And so the business of us is an aggregate of the business of you. You're a part of it. I'm a part of it. And so if I manage my business well, then I can afford to contribute to the business of us. And so we looked at this through the lens of Kelly Miller. And he is one of the baddest black men on the planet. Among other things, he was the first African-American to to attend the John Hopkins PhD program. He wasn't able to finish because of financial um, difficulty, but he went on to be a dean at um, Howard School, at Howard University. And he was an editor of both Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And so he created what you call, what he called a middle road, where it was not, it was both. It wasn't, it wasn't an either or, it was a both and. It was both vocational and academic instruction. He also has this amazing quote that talks about the capitalism and how the role of the dollar uh, makes capitalism and the Negro one. An open shop provides an opportunity for a black man to generate um, what he, he desires, create what he desires to create. So when we looked at the business of us, there are two economic mindsets in the African-American community. There's the earners who work for someone else, and then there's the owners who want to own their own enterprise. And it's not an either or, it's a both and. Now, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the talented 10th. But what I found is that a lot of people, when they refer to that brilliant alpha Harvard brother, (laughs) is that they didn't read the whole memo. It wasn't just about the talented 10th being talented. It was the talented 10th going where few of us can go and come being back to what I call the necessary 90. So we have a full 100. So the necessary 90 was evidenced in Booker T. Washington. And while he encouraged us not to fight for the vote, very few people know and understand that he could afford to fund those who did. And so Kelly Miller saw that if the earners would invest in the owners, then the owners could elevate the standard of business in the business of us or our community. And the earners, through a return on investment, could Elevate the game that we played, where it wasn't just a worker, it could be a leader, and our true talent could be represented. And so we explored ways in which we can elevate the standard of the business of us by looking at our nonprofit organizations and ways in which we can be mindful that a non-for-profit doesn't mean no profit. It means that it needs to be a profitable business because there are tax laws that allow us to to reinvest that money into the mission and the vision of that enterprise. And so most of the men in the, in the room were either a part of a not-for-profit in Detroit, and some of them ran not-for-profits in Detroit. So we were able to really have very open conversations from a lens of business, both personal and aggregate, about what it would take for us to elevate the standard of the business of us. And we created a standard by which the brotherhood that we are forming with the Black Male Equity Initiative would uphold so that we can start to see changes 
in the business of us to the contributions that we can afford to make because we took the time to take care of the business of you. Now you have, uh, in addition, you talked about um, um, some of the uh, financial projects you, you, that you and the gentleman uh, involved in in Detroit. You have another outcome is that you have a publication coming out soon. Why don't you talk about that briefly? Yeah, so the Blackmail Equity Anthology, um, so is, is to send out a, a trumpet, if you will, an invitation to black men. Um, the ultimate vision for me um, with the Black Male Equity Initiative is I would like to, I would love to be able to see a black male equity syndicate where black men from across this country can go through an educational process, take care of the business of themselves, identify where they want to contribute to the business of us, pool capital together, co-invest it, deploy it, own assets, develop assets, and continue to earn more and more equity together. And so the Black Male Equity Anthology is giving you a glimpse of what we've done this year and inviting you to continue the journey with us so that we don't go it alone. We have already been blessed to um, expand the Black Male Equity Initiative into another city. Um, and our desire is to continue to do so with the cohort members. So we're forming a brotherhood. And these brothers were facilitated by brilliant black men that I was able to bring to the equity table, but they are experts in their own right. And so they will be facilitating the continuance of this uh, further, deeper into Detroit, but also throughout the country as well. And so the Black Male Equity Anthology is to allow you to a glimpse into what we've spent 12 months doing and to invite you to imagine with us uh, a standard of wealth created by black men coming together and identifying where can we invest, what can we own, and what can we do together. And when will it be out? Martin Luther King Day. It'll be out Mar Mar Martin Luther King Day. That's assuming that the editors get their act together, but it'll, it'll be out Martin Luther King Day. And <laughs> and how, uh, if someone listening to this broadcast wants more information about the Black Male Equity Initiative, how might they do that? So they can go to... Um, TheLegacyWealthInitiative.com, uh, and you'll see uh, the Black Male Equity Initiative post, and I'll give you an overview. And they can sign up there to learn more. They can also go to PamelaJolly.com and sign up just to learn more, because we'll have a limited edition copy coming out on Martin Luther King Day, and then we'll have a series of events as well as a podcast series with the men. Um, where we will further invite you in more specific ways to join the journey. So um, those are the two best ways to be able to do it. Dr. Pamela Jolly, thank you uh, for not only this work, but for joining us today on The Public Morality. That was Dr. Pamela Jolly. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. It seems that government shutdowns are a way of life. It's certainly not a new phenomenon 
Since 1976, when the current budget and appropriations process was enacted, there have been 22 gaps in budget funding, 10 of which led to federal employees being furloughed. But the frequency in which they now occur feels that the most basic expectation a people should hold for its elected officials is routinely beyond their abilities. Shouldn't we stop referring to these episodes as government shutdowns? Shouldn't we call it what it really is, elected officials arrogantly messing with innocent people's lives? These are real people who, through no fault of their own, are seasonal political pawns who must now add the inability of those whose primary responsibility is to conduct the people's business to agree on year-end spending bills to their list of personal concerns. What used to be a perfunctory act is now a weaponized political tool that, that leaves carnage of federal workers in its way. Currently, that number stands at 800,000, but will soon rise when it reaches the hinterlands and begin affecting those who contract with the federal government in some capacity. At what point do we put the genie back in the bottle? This is certainly not a path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.